0: This is Lewis Lapham Lappin for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is The World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. Speaking today with the lawyer and journalist Eric Berkowitz about his new and necessary book. Dangerous Ideas, A Brief History of Censorship in the West, From the Ancients to Fake News. Your book, Eric, tells a dramatic story about the power of words, a story you carry across the frontiers of 3,000 years, one that with your own gift for language, you make as timely and vivid as yesterday's breaking news. You bring Plato and Milton into the conversation with Zuckerberg and Trump. Perhaps you can begin with a historical background of the point made in the last sentence of the book, that striking its speech to eliminate a dangerous idea is not only ineffective, it will cause more mischief in the long run.
1: Well, thanks a lot for having me. I mean, I think we first to start with the last sentence in the book, we have to, you know, key into the word dangerous. You know, what is a dangerous idea? Dangerous to whom? Right. Can an idea itself be dangerous? Well, I mean, we view danger on a personal level. I mean, for forgetting someone coming at you with a sword. We view danger on a, on a personal level as dangerous to our feelings. We can view dangerous on a political level as dangerous to the state itself, or we can view dangerous as a spiritual or social level. Each, the, the, the question, I suppose, Lewis, is who decides what is dangerous and how, how that danger is mitigated. I think one of the things that you, know, you mentioned is in, dangerous in the long run. And so let me just go to something that is rather anodyne to start, which is trying to eliminate a dangerous idea such as denial of the Holocaust. Okay, one of the first things that I talk about in the book is, you know, not all censorship comes from touchiness or, or some sort of authoritarian impulse. Sometimes we use censorship to affect the social good, and one of the points that I make in the book is that that almost invariably backfires. So who could argue, really, with going against someone who is denying the factuality of you know one of the, if not the greatest human catastrophe uh, ever, which is the system, you know, which is the industrialized murder of a population during during World War II. So various laws, various efforts have been put out to stop that speech because it's, it's, it's believed that such speech can perpetuate the sort of racist beliefs that you know lead towards that sort of thing. And what happens is it almost invariably backfires. One of the first anecdotes that I tell in the book is Canada's effort to basically shut down this character named Ernst Zundel, this is in the 80s, who published a a stupid little pamphlet called Did Six Million Really Die? He was a Holocaust denier. He had a little business doing that. And, you know, Canada, I think, very nobly tried to stop this uh, in their borders. And what effectively occurred... In those trials, is it backfired massively in Canada's face? First off, this character Zundel got a bigger platform than he ever could have had before. He showed up to court each day with a banner on his hat saying, "You know, free speech. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a proponent of of free speech, etc." And what the judge tried to do in order to create a fair trial is allow is make the you know the Canadian prosecutors prove that the Holocaust existed which gave Zundel and his crew the opportunity to, very publicly and on a platform he never once had, deny that it existed. That became news. He finally lost. It went to the Canadian Supreme Court. And the Canadian Supreme Court, I think rightly, ruled for Zundel, saying that, that you can't freeze history in any Particular narrative, even when you're trying to do the right thing, and they reminded the North, the Canadians as well as the Americans, just just in the South, that a number of historical narratives have become accepted truth, such as the natural inferiority of African Americans, the you know slanders against 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 Native Americans, et cetera, and so even when you're trying to censor for the public benefit, inevitably. The opposite idea comes out and you end up causing mischief by, as the Canadian Supreme Court recognized, freezing narratives into one form,
0: a bad thing. I mean, isn't that what Plato's Republic is saying is is the noble falsehood? I mean, it doesn't matter whether the intel is true or false. It just matters that the children of the city believe what they're told.
1: Yeah I mean that that was just that that is again you know thankfully that city that Red Republic never actually took place because it would be a rather grim place to be. I mean he advocated virtually you know uh, let's just you know I, without the murder a sort of Maoist state in which in, in, in which ideas are are fully channeled uh, particularly to one population in order to mold them to think a certain thing of course I mean that was built on a on a on a I mean for a mind as 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 rich and extraordinary as Plato's it was built on I think a rather naive falsehood that the human mind can be molded quite that uh intentionally <laughs> and that right. we actually yeah. are you know can be literally programmed by withholding certain information and stressing other information that a certain result will happen that simply doesn't
0: occur. Right. Right. I mean it's it's this is suppression of speech mm-hmm. it is practically impossible to do for any length of time right it, it the genie gets out of the bottle
1: well more than that, the genie becomes pretty damn attractive for for being stuck in the bottle <laughs> yeah that that, that that I mean we have this expression in the United States banned in boston right i mean right. it's something sudden you know because boston had the, for a time, had one of the more censorious municipal systems, you know, America's ever seen. But what that implies is that we want it, you know? I mean, right. when something is forbidden, it becomes forbidden fruit. One of the anecdotes that, that I tell, you know, one of the great, of course, it's no great insight, one of the great pivotal events in censorship is the invention of the printing press. When when the, the dissemination of knowledge you know, could occur on a scale never before thought uh, possible. And one of the first things that that you know inevitably what followed this huge diffusion of thought and 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 material is uh, a whole new range of censorship regimes. And printers were telling their writers write anything that would be forbidden why because the price goes up because the fact that something is forbidden makes it worthwhile to read <laughs> and right. so you know if i i jump ahead a, a couple centuries where you know France had this habit particularly in the 18th and 19th centuries where they would they would not only ban a book they would burn it publicly As a spectacle of power, as an assertion of control over the public discourse, but also to make known that this is, you know, that that you're going to get in trouble if you have this book. What occurred is that they stopped burning books publicly because that display only spiked sales. I mean, so you can't really stop an idea. I mean, certainly you can make someone suffer. Certainly you can make a population suffer. Certainly you can do a lot of nasty mischief, which is what I cover and which is what we're seeing around. But uh, the idea itself, it becomes almost um, better and more credible for being forbidden.
0: I mean, is that what happens with our own so-called cancel culture?
1: You know, I think our so-called cancel culture uh is, you know, that's a broad that's a broad subject and the word cancel culture sort of is, you know, bleached of meaning. I would take it Lewis, a little bit differently on that. I think at least viewing it in the United States, you know, cancel culture is uh, seems to be a result of an already quite polarized uh system of thought and, and that I don't think, you know, uh, people on the, who are trying to ban the teaching of critical race theory, uh, in schools are, are really going to, uh, you know, are, are really looking for converts, uh, from the people who are trying to, you know, teach critical race theory, et cetera. I think what, you know, what happens with cancel culture, you know, there was that new book that just came out in Texas, about the Alamo written by some historians, and they came up with the you know, not remarkable uh, con- conclusion that maybe the moral lines on defending the Alamo weren't quite as clear as the Texas popular mythology has it. The lieutenant governor has personally taken that off reading lists and made a big spectacle of, of uh, canceling the appearance of the authors at a Texas state affair, et cetera. That you know, cancel culture. One of the themes that I deal with in the book is that censorship is also and can be I, what I call an affirmation of faith. What I what I call is that you're you're not really looking to interfere with the discourse. You're looking to make your own beliefs known. So what 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 the lieutenant governor of Texas did in making this sort of public display of his you know uh, uh, against this 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 narrative of Texas history and say, this is what I believe. And because what I believe is this, the concomitant of that, the second half of that is to try and cancel beliefs that are trying to go against beliefs that you don't agree with. Not necessarily to erase them from the discourse, but to make your feelings known. It's the same reason, taking it from the other hand, that there was, a, there was this anti-trans book uh, that was, you know, knocking around the lower reaches of Amazon for a number of years. I forgot the name of it. I'm sorry. It was a book that questioned the 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 uh, profusion of uh, gender transitioning surgeries, et cetera, amongst the young. And it, it had been knocking around Amazon for a long time without making a big in, impression. It then somehow wormed its way up into the public discourse. Amazon began to take a lot of uh, heat for it. And an ACLU lawyer, an ACLU lawyer who was trans, uh, announced that this fight, the fight to to keep this book off of Amazon and to keep this book off the sales racks was for him a hill to die on. Now, was that person really intending to erase anti-trans speech from the public discourse? I don't think so. Was he making known his belief? Yes. And so a lot of cancel culture, I think, just comes from us feeling that when, you know, this is another one of the things that I deal with is that, you know, from the beginning, I mean, from the beginning, we have had, I I believe this is Eric Berkowitz, the uh, psych psychologist of you know <laughs> three thousand years of human history, that we have this internal impulse to to swat away uh, ideas that jar us, ideas that challenge us, ideas that that call our beliefs into question, kind of like a loud sound or a mosquito or something. That we have this impulse to move things away. And I think it takes a lot of self-possession, a lot of um, maybe more than I have, certainly, to a lot of confidence. Let's put it like that in your own own beliefs to coexist with challenging ideas. You know, we have this confusion now, and you were talking about cancel culture. This is, I think, you know, I'm I'm 62. I grew up, as, as did you, in, in, in probably the greatest era of free speech the world's ever known, which is the United States in the last 50 odd years, uh, as far as freedom of expression goes. And part of that, I think, is built on the foundation that to tolerate speech, to tolerate speech that jars us, is not the same as to approve it. <laughs> and we have this this idea, and it's creeping, particularly amongst the young and amongst the you know people who have very strong ideologies, that merely existing in the presence, to tolerate someone's ability to say something, implies that we approve it, it implies that we adopt it. And that's absolutely not the case. I think we're sort of losing our ability to live with uh,
0: what Oliver Wendell Holmes called thoughts we hate yes i mean i mean you 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 mentioned a, i mean i'm older than you are i i am born in 1935 and so i grew up in the 1940s and and 50s and the uh-huh. it, it seems to me i mean it, it, my memory plays tricks but that there was a good more a good deal more freedom of of, of speech in in the 40s in the 50s people could say what they didn't take themselves so seriously they you, you could make fun of yourself you you know the humor was the humor of the folks in the bleachers laughing and at, at, at the you know and making fun of the high hats in the box seats and and then that reversed itself I mean I I, I now Watch what I say. I mean, I didn't, I didn't do that uh, forty years ago. I mean, I watch what I say because I don't know uh, how it's going to be uh, understood. So I think that's something that's happened in my in my lifetime. Yes,
1: yes, I think it has. I think given your sweep, um, you know the the. 40s and the 50s were, were sort of a great clearing. I mean, there, was, there, was, there, there were huge suppressions of speech, but also the congealing of an idea You know, that reached, its, I think, its apex with the Pentagon Papers decision and the Sullivan decision that, 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 that conflict and that offense and a rough edge, a sharp edge, be it by humor, be it by commentary, be it by the way you live, is you know hurts. No one's denying that these things hurt, but they also uh, are clarifying, and they're also sort of a more accurate recognition of of, of a multifaceted society. We're yeah. now of the belief that in a multifaceted society, and this I think came out of the Salman Rushdie episodes. And the Danish cartoons episode and the Charlie Hebdo episode is that we're now of the belief that in a, a multifaceted society, a multiethnic so- society, that we need to watch our words twice as much. So whereas Satanic Verses you know, created all this trouble when it was published, the, what was fascinating is, at least at first the the voices of authority who are of, of your vintage, Lewis, were, were, you know, be it Thatcher or even the publishers, stood by Rushdie. You know, he wrote a book that, that rightly or wrongly, caused a whole lot of offense by a lot of people. They exploited it, et cetera. We can go on forever on that. But there was solid belief that Rushdie had the right to write what what he wrote. But as things... And this is the one of the things that I talk about, and I, I borrow from a truly great thinker in the UK named Keenan Malik, um, who came up with a marvelous expression that we've internalized the fatwa. Is The fatwa issued against Salman, Salman Rushdie for his book. Uh, okay, Rushdie went into hiding for nine years, or whatever, you know, he sur- survived it, but, and the book was never taken off the shelves. But in, a, in effect we're all pulling punches now we're all holding yeah yeah we're all holding back and in fact i make a point lewis which actually this is an anecdote that i'd like to tell it's kind of astounding um, i make the point in the book that that about this one case that came out two or three years ago in europe this woman uh, kind of a flamethrower character um at least with ideas, gave a seminar in Austria saying that the prophet Muhammad was a pedophile, talking about his 15-year-old or 13-year-old wife. Kind of a, kind of a crude, awful thing to say, but there, but there it is. And kind of stupid, given that he, Muhammad lived 1,400 years ago. Whatever. She was charged under a hate crime law. She was charged under a, cra- under a law of sowing division. And she lost... And she appealed the case to the European Court of Human Rights, which is the court in Europe charged with these things, and she lost in the, in the European Court of Human Rights. And this is in 2019. The court held that she went beyond the limits of permissible debate, and, and you shouldn't be gratuitously offensive. And they and the court held that by charging her criminally, her free speech was not impinged, nor was the free speech of Europe. And I made a huge point in the book of saying that that, that by with that decision, the court internalized the fatwa for all of Europe, that somehow now we can't be offensive. And there is so much that flows from from that. Well, my 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 UK publisher publishes a lot in Arabic. And, and the woman who runs it is an extremely brave, remarkable person, and she is, the one who is she's the one who was pushing me for years, you know, take a stand, don't hold back, Eric, you know, be bold in this book. I want you to step out in front of this issue. Okay. I write a line in this book saying, criticizing this decision, saying that it internalized the fatwa, and she calls me and says, I can't do it. I can't publish that that line. You've got to change the book, or change this passage. She said, we've had bricks thrown through our window. I'm a mother. Uh, My employees are parents. This is going too far. I'm concerned about violence. And it put me in a real position because, (laughs) you know, I'm taking a stand in this book. I mean, my, my stupid little book is, you know, I'm trying to be at least consistent in my own thinking, but all of a sudden, reality sets in, you know, that someone I care about very, very deeply, whose family I care about very, very deeply, is all of a sudden in danger. This, you know, I, I'm criticizing internalizing the photo, but the, the course of this passage in the UK's edition emblemizes that, and I did rewrite that section because I couldn't live with myself, frankly, if, if, if something that I wrote caused someone uh, that kind of harm. So, yeah, yeah, Lewis, I think you're right. We've somehow, um, somehow, at least many of us have taken ourselves a little too seriously, meaning that we cannot even coexist with the existence of, um, excuse me, let me put that better. We can't even coexist with ideas that um, that really Rub hard against what we
0: hold dear. Yeah, and and the other side of that is is the other part of the quotation that you have from Rushdie when he when he says that now we've gotten to the point where rage is uh, justifies uh, means we're just. You see what I mean? In other words, oh the film, yeah, yeah,
1: make make that point. He said, "I mean, I'm just going to let Rushdie made it." He wrote a story in hiding. Okay, uh, he was he was in hiding still, uh, but he sort of popped up, and he would publish stories once in a while. And he published a story in Granta, uh, a great journal out of the UK, and he stuck this passage in as sort of an interpolation. It had nothing to really to do with this, with the with the narrative of the story that he was writing. But he wrote, we, the public, are easily, lethally offended. We have come to think of taking offense as a fundamental right. We take pride in our short fuses. Our anger elevates, transcends. Yeah,
0: Yeah. I mean, that's what's going on. I mean, that's, you know, that's what's behind a lot of the hate speech. And that's what's behind a lot of the, you know, talking heads on, on cable TV.
1: From both sides, you know. Yes, I know. No, no, yeah, 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 yeah. no.
0: It's it's um, uh, it's both sides, right? I mean, I I mean the, (laughs) I mean the rage of Tucker Carlson and the rage of Don Lemon are coming out from the same, you know, high tribunal of of. the Vatican.
1: <laughs> well, you know, yeah. <laughs> I mean, part of it is, I think, and you know, and we can reach back to Plato or we can reach back, to, you know, I the, the book covers, you know, pretty steadily, uh, you know, through the Renaissance and through the Middle Ages that, that, of, of this idea that words have, I think we exaggerate the importance of words and we also minimize the Im- importance of words. We, we have this idea and I think the ruling classes have had this idea, if I want to use that term broadly, that ideas that challenge their authority or that call their authority into question almost reflexively have to be squelched. And, and I have you know, example after example in the book of, of you know, humorous to darkly humorous to just plainly ridiculous excesses by governments uh, and religious authorities to to you know, hunt down and chase ideas that either ridicule them or make them ridiculous. Talking about the sweep of the last 50-odd years, we've reached a consensus, at least so far, in American law, and also to a lesser extent in Euro- European law, although n- not as much, where those in authority simply need to take their lumps, Okay, that you can... Saturday Night Live can, you know, parody Jimmy Carter and Reagan and Nixon and the others, and they simply have to take their lumps hard. And and the Supreme Court, uh, you know, has affirmed that time and again, most, most famously in the Sullivan decision, that we can talk about how that's now the ground under that decision is starting to weaken. Uh, but individuals, have never been put to that test. we've never been as individuals or even as private groups been forced to have the resilience that rulers have i mean and you know Trump is the perfect apotheosis of all this because he 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 uh, for you know unfortunately for him unfortunately for for us became president while there was enough legal precedent which allowed criticism of him to exist. We can look around and just imagine what he would have done uh, had he the legal you know, um, uh, tools to squelch criticism. An interesting mix of all this is what's happening in social media because we've now sort of forsaken our, our cherished laws and legal precedents and moved the entire discourse over to the, uh, what are effectively private concerns. You know, the uh, share, shareholder-held companies such as Facebook or Google. And, you know, that's where the action is and that's where the discourse is happening. And the law, such as it is, uh, are the sort of ad hoc terms of service that, they, <laughs> that we click accept on, you know, 15-odd years ago when we first signed on to these services. And that's, that's now the Supreme Court. And what's kind of interesting is that as the European and other authorities, you know, lock down uh, greater penalties, greater threats against the likes of Facebook, Facebook has been, uh, not surreptitiously, but not without really saying as much, we've been importing much more stringent European speech restrictions onto the American discourse through the terms of service of the online platforms.
0: Yes, I mean, I, I don't understand what gives Zuckerberg or Twitter the right to take things out or put things into their social media platforms just because it's it, it doesn't suit them. I mean, I mean, where do they get that power? Uh,
1: well, because the way things are set up in this country, uh, they have the same power that a guy who runs the corner coffee shop does or a private school, or you around your dining room table, uh, their private concerns. I mean, what we have now is kind of an apotheosis of, of um, <laughs> uh, kind of a disharmonic convergence of, of, of t- t- traditions and precedents you know, reach that have reached kind of uh, a stage that no one ever could have thought of. You know, what gives Mark Mark Zuckerberg, the majority shareholder, the uh, authority to stamp down Trump uh, or anyone else he doesn't like? Because it's his sandbox. You know, we're all playing in his sandbox and we're and every little controversy that we have, every every spat that we have brings Keqing in his his pockets. So what what what, what we have is a, almost a sorcerer's apprentice situation. You know, tech development reaching the stage where, you know, um, I could communicate d- directly with someone sitting on top of Mount, Mount Everest or I could make my opinions known to billions of, of people at the same time, M- mixed with the American idea that the remedy to bad speech is more speech <laughs> and also the we have also you know reaching a situation where corporations themselves have greater speech rights than yeah. anyone imagined before so all this is mixing to 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 lead to you know just plain astounding power on the part of of google twitter and 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 the others i mean they will suppress or amplify or deamplify or you know, silo literally billions of pieces of speech a day, and they're doing it for money. And there is actually, I can't think of another alternative. That's the hard part, you know?
0: We don't like it, but what do you do to remedy it? Well, how does that connect to the Supreme Court Citizens United ruling, which says that money is speech?
1: Yeah, well, uh, the, the, you know, just for for our listeners, uh, you know, some years ago the the Supreme Court uh, came out with it and pretty much took the reins off corporate political spending, taking the idea that spending money is speech and you know giving corporations which who don't breathe, who don't bleed, who don't really have feelings the way that we do, giving them the same. virtually the same range of action that we have well it's really been taken one step further because if you want to connect this to citizens united not only is spending money speech but under the current situation making money is speech because my very presence on Facebook is earning someone money. There's a profile, you know, on me that's being created and refined every time that I'm on or doing anything on Facebook or Twitter or anything else. It follows me around, and so that, and then I'm fed things that keep me slightly irritated and outraged because the social science says that when you're irritated and outraged, you'll hang around longer, and then I'm fed ads uh, which, which, you know, pander to whatever prejudice I happen to have that day. And, and so to, uh, to a large extent now making money is speech. We don't really have the tools. I mean, we have these dozens and dozens and dozens of bills knocking around state houses in Congress to effectively regulate what, the platforms can do with their speech and nearly all of them are or pretty much all of them are going to fail in court i will predict because uh the precedents are simply too strong that the government cannot tell a corporation i mean with exceptions but can't can't with certain exceptions that don't apply can't tell uh can't tell us what to say or not to say can't can't limit reach of speech or not limit reach of speech. And and in the end, uh, I think that's probably for the good. You know, we have a profusion of fake news and hate speech. And we think, again, like we started out this conversation talking about uh, Holocaust denial. Well, what on earth could possibly be wrong with a law? Let's say Congress passed a law today saying falsehoods on social media are to be uh, taken down as soon as practicable. If the platforms don't do that, they'll be subject to gargantuan fines. I think most people, or many people, other than First Amendment scholars, are going to say, well, hell yeah, that's a good thing. You know, The problem yeah. is with every law that, that regulates speech, you've got to look at who's going to be enforcing it. Okay? And, you, and we have this wonderful example of Donald Trump being someone who actually ran the executive branch for four years and think, what would he do with this law? OK, well, we have examples because there are fake news laws all over the world now, dozens and dozens of them. And they're not being used to suppress fake news. <laughs> they're being used to suppress truth. Fake news right. laws are, are routinely being used around the world to to. Uh, against people who are revealing government misfeasance or negligence in the face of the COVID pandemic, etc., Singapore now has forced opposition parties to label all of their websites with banners that say what, everything we're saying is false. I mean, fake. So, so the problem with any rule, and this is something that I think the likes of Brandeis and Holmes 100 years ago recognized, and people like Brennan much more recently, William Brennan, the Supreme Court Justice, is that imposing a rule on speech from above will inevitably backfire, will inevitably serve the short-term imperatives of the party who is enforcing the law. And I think that gets to your first question. If you know that, that suppressions, yeah. of even, even dangerous ideas will cause more mischief in the long run. Hate speech rules are routinely used to, to suppress dissent. Fake news laws are routinely used to suppress truth. I mean, look, I've got my buttons, and Lewis, I'm sure you have yours. You know, you hear certain things and they make your blood pressure go up, or you yeah. hear certain things against your religion, your group, a group you identify with, and you want to stop it. And, and but you we 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 have to you know accept uh that there is going to always be things around that are going to drive us insane
0: well then that brings up the other question you raised, which is i mean one of the great virtues of of the American democracy is tolerance, yeah, but how what are the limits of tolerance i mean Can you tolerate intolerance? Well, that is a
1: brilliant question. uh, Well, it's your
0: your question.
1: (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, what I talk about is, is, you know, as the world reordered itself after the war, America and Europe went in vastly different directions. To us in the United States, expressions of hate and intolerance are themselves ideas, and ideas are to be protected. The obnoxious ones, the hideous ones, the horrible ones, or the ones that seem obnoxious and hideous might have a grain of truth. That's reaching back to Mill. and, 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 you know, we have to let the discourse get ugly once in a while to let the flowers grow from between the cracks in the sidewalk. Europe, having had a vastly different experience during the war of seeing, you know, just how bad things could get, Went on the belief, I think, crystallized by the Austrian uh, philosopher Karl Popper, that you know tolerance uh, will breed intolerance. <laughs> that that if yeah. we tolerate intolerance in that in that food fight or in that brawl, uh, intolerance is going to win. And so yeah. so their all of their constitutions. Are kind of mealy. There's always an article that will say freedom of speech is a basic right of mankind and it should be protected at all costs. Inevitably followed by the next provision, which says except when democracy is at stake, except when people are caused pain, et cetera. And so they they always go through sort of a balancing of 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 speech, whereas we in America take a much more absolutist approach. I respect the European approach. I respect what they're doing, but it respectfully hasn't worked. Uh, I don't think that the quantum of hatred, for example, in Germany is really any less than it is here, even though you, there's, there's, you know, I mean, on the same weekend that American Nazis were marching in Charlottesville with their little tiki torches and, and having this hate fest, which was so hurtful, and in fact, resulted in someone dying. That same weekend, two Chinese tourists stood in front of the Reichstag in Berlin, and, like the idiots that they are, raised the Nazi salute. Well, they 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 were put in jail temporarily, while we allowed the American Nazis to march. Uh, you know, the, the that extreme enforcement, that extreme efforts to sanitize the public discourse, really only moves. Uh, moves the hatred elsewhere. It it doesn't stop it. You know, it's simply uh, I, there's a scholar here named Greg Lukianoff who I really respect. who's talking about the squelching of hate speech is like taking Xanax when you have syphilis. You know, you might yeah. feel good for a while, but <laughs> but the syphilis isn't getting any better. Okay, right. it's just going to yeah. get worse. And so, uh, uh, to what extent can intolerance be tolerated? Well.
0: We're about to find out, I think. We're finding out.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I we're think finding we're finding out.
0: out. Right. Yeah. I, I do. And, and, you know, and that, you know, along my lines of thought, that, that leads to mischief and, and it, to authoritarianism.
1: Yeah, it does. And authoritarianism on the left and authoritarianism on the right uh, on the right, i yeah. uh, always oh. kind of meet behind the shed and look a lot alike to me. Yeah, uh, I mean, this is what I think is kind of interesting. I mean, my book will you know, chronicles a number of different themes of you know the justifications for censorship, how it developed, you know, what aims are being served, and what sort of dr- dramatic human stories come out of it. And there and there are many but at the same time you know i i i don't i try to avoid sort of polemics by by you know saying all censorship is bad and anyone who 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 tries to exercise censorship is a fool and we need to hate them i try and understand how we're all sort of censors in our own minds and try to understand what's really behind it and so you know when faced with 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 speech that is destructive what are the limits that we can you know can impose while still guarding our society i mean britain right now which is the closest thing that we have to a mirror on our own society is about to pass a law it's in parliament which will impose on the social media platforms a duty of care to pre- to prevent any speech causing predictable adverse psychological harm on anyone. They say, this is Britain talking, Yeah, you know? right. And, and, and the pain on that will be gargantuan, billions and billions and billions and billions of pounds, fines against the platforms. Uh, you know, what's that going, that's modeled on the German model, but they have a similar law, which they passed six or seven years ago, the result of that is you are going to sanitize the public discourse. There will be less obnoxious stuff on the wall, uh, but we're, we'll, it's basically carpet bombing. It's bombing the whole town to get at, you know, a couple bad houses. So a lot of speech is going to get squelched. A lot of ideas are going to get squelched. And I'm not quite sure society is going to be better off for it
0: at all. No, I mean, that's, that's the direction that Orwell was pointing toward.
1: Yeah. 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 I mean, Orwell was, you know, talking about that if there's anything, if, free, if if freedom of expression means anything, it's the right to tell someone something that they don't want to hear. Okay. Well, he was talking, you know, he, was, he came out of the Spanish Civil War and, and World War II, and he was, you know, talking mostly about ideas, you know, about dissent, either dissent from the right or dissent from, from the left. I think what we're talking about now is, is, you know, to a great extent is offense and, 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 um, and, and, and hurt feelings. You know, it's very interesting. I, 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 I couldn't believe this, but, you know, back in the 1830s, there was a rush of abolitionist literature that was mailed from the north to the south in the, you know, in the United States. And it that we 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 had a, very, a vastly different speech environment in the 1830s than we do now. Very promptly, abolitionist literature was was outlawed in the South. You know, even to advocate the freeing of slaves became a death crime in several states, etc. And as the Senate debated measures to to to. To bar even discussion of abolition in Congress, John Calhoun, a real, a real, a real colorful character, a senator, I think, from South Carolina and later vice president, argued that abolitionist literature hurt his feelings and hurt the feelings of other slave owners that they didn't like being being spoken about in such harsh ways. It made them feel bad. <laughs> and well, so, yeah,
0: but that, that, that's the whole point of this. Safe spaces at college. I mean, yeah. I had I had a friend at Yale who was teaching a course in in modern European history, and he got around to the Nazis, and uh-huh. he got and uh, you know he t- talked about the history, talked about the Holocaust, talked about the Eisengruppen and in in, uh, in the Pale, and mm-hmm. uh, a Jewish girl begins to cry. And on that basis, he's forbidden in a course of modern European history to mention the Holocaust. Is that true? Really? Yeah. That's 1989
1: at Yale. In 89, this Yale professor was yeah. uh, sort of taken out back by the administrators and said, right. maybe you should avoid this subject. Because it's upsetting
0: people. Yeah, it hurts. It hurts somebody's feelings. That's the whole point of safe space. Trigger, trigger, right? It's about hurting people's feelings. (laughs) Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, and, okay, so here's, here's the, here's the ambiguity. And here's the, here's the hard part. There is no question, unfortunately, that this poor girl's feelings were hurt. Because that is That's true. Yeah. One gruesome, hideous, yeah almost uh, impossible to comprehend you know piece piece of history
0: right. so
1: can we surgically step in to make this girl's life a little bit less painful but 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 bring in crucial pieces of history can we surgically mold the discourse in order to meet that need unfortunately i think not and uh, and noble sounding rules. I mean, this is the hard. This is the hard part. People say, "Well, we should protect people's feelings," but then I get back to it. You know, Nelson Mandela so, lived in a jail cell for quite a long time, basically on hate speech charges. Gandhi lived in a jail cell for quite a long time on hate speech charges, on causing division, because right. you know, and so. We always have to look, I mean, even the, it, it might be a noble exercise. And I mean, what you described this Yale event just strikes me as, 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 you know, ludicrous, but I'll accept the nobility of the effort. I simply would tell these people, you know, you're going to cause more harm in the long run. You simply can't teach the Holocaust. You can't teach 20th century European history and protect people's feelings. It just isn't going to happen. There's yeah. just too. There's just too much that when you can't yeah. teach the Chinese yeah. Revolution and hurt people's feelings, or even the American, the American Revolution and protect people's feelings. Too much. You know, we can't yeah. present uh, right. a depiction of human behavior that will leave us in uh, feeling uh, safer than we were before we heard about it.
0: <laughs> yeah, but then, but then that goes back also to. Uh, what you call the German phrase scissorhead, right? I mean, the, yeah, 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 yeah. you know, we, we, <laughs> we, we learn to censor ourselves.
1: Yeah. What I was talking about, that was kind of, I mean, I, there's a lot that's funny. I mean, we're talking about these very, yeah, very serious yeah. subjects, but there's a lot of absurdity that I try and highlight is they're talking about that. Scissors in the head, I I can't pronounce the word in German. It's a great word. Uh, uh, (laughs) The plight of a journalist in East Germany in the 60s and 70s, Uh, not an easy one because Eric Honecker apparently uh, spent most of his time or much of his time reading the newspapers and dictating what should be said. So Mitch is a bratwurst were squelched because uh, they didn't want people to want bratwurst as much. Lawn, lawn bowling was a for, forbidden subject. Uh, gliders were a forbidden subject, etc., cetera, et cetera. Anything that might cause envy or discontent, and it just got crazy. And so the journalists would self-censor and the word scissors in the head came from like there, you were constantly like trying to stay one step ahead of Hanukkah and the censors because you didn't want yourself to end up with the scissors, you know, in your heart. And so we self-censor. And I think that professor
0: friend of yours probably um, either found a new line of work. Well, the other option is to offer the students the chance to be excused from the class that is dealing with Nazi Germany. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, I don't yeah, know. There's, I don't know. there's a lot of, you know, I think our parents probably saw us as the same sort of callow fools that we kind of view a lot of, you know, the very strident young now. And that, that's why, you know, uh, my focus on the law is, is so... Uh, direct because the law is supposed to be a collective expression of values, not just now, but over time. Yeah, and that's right. why I think the the genius of the common law, as opposed to to the law that's practiced in Europe, which is built on codes, is that it allows development. So what what exists now is supposed to be sort of the sum total of learning from our mistakes over a long period of time. So we're in this very, very, touchy period. Now everyone's walking around as, as, as Rushdie says, uh, you know, our anger defines us and helps us. We're supposed to, you know, the, the inherited principles are supposed to guard us almost from ourselves. Okay. So maybe this girl, you know, against it, look, she's going to learn if she wants to be an informed person, she's going to learn what's happened in the mid 20th century, or she's not going to be for her own good. She's going to have to suffer a little bit, you know?
0: It's just a really fine book, Eric. I I appreciate your writing it. I'm glad I had the chance to read it. And I hope that many more people avail themselves of the same opportunity. So thank you, Eric Berkowitz, for speaking with us today about your new book, Dangerous Ideas, A Brief History of Censorship in the West, From the ancients to fake news.
1: It was great being on this. I really appreciate it.
0: Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.